Hello, and welcome to 37th and the World, the official podcast of the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs. Gajia is the student-run flagship publication of Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. On 37th and the World, we dive into key global trends and speak directly with the experts working on these issues in areas ranging from conflict and security, human rights and development, science and technology, society and culture, business and economics, and global governance. Ask anyone, what is the most pressing existential threat faced by humanity? And you'll likely hear climate change in resounding unison. Ask what should be done about climate change, and suddenly the united voices devolve into a cacophony of viewpoints. There is no consensus on the correct course of action for combating what is considered the greatest threat posed to humanity in history. Or at least, no one seems to be willing to take meaningful action to prevent climate change's worst effects. Climate change policy debates currently revolve around mitigating climate change. In other words, cutting emissions and reducing our impacts on the environment. International mitigation efforts, such as the Paris Agreement, have focused on achieving measurable reductions in emissions. And more recently, President Biden pledged that the United States will rejoin the Paris Agreement and commit itself to cutting its greenhouse gas emissions from 50 to 52 percent of 2005 levels by 2030. But what about the effects of climate change already baked into the past few decades of steady warming, which can't be prevented by future emission reductions? Certainly, switching from a fossil fuel economy to a green one in 2050 will not help those in 2021 who experience worsening natural disasters due to climate change now. Even as the international community painstakingly moves towards this goal of emissions reduction, climate change will not incrementally get better as we make incremental progress. Alice Hill, former Senior Director for Resilience Policy on the National Security Council under the Obama administration and current Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, believes in the necessity of climate resilience a less familiar term in the fight against climate change. According to Hill, what is missing from the current climate change discussion and policymaking is recognizing that climate change is not a future threat. It is here among us. Climate resilience is what has been needed this whole time in order to address both the current and the future consequences of climate change. And I hope that this discussion with Alice Hill will inspire courage and persistence as we face humanity's gravest danger. More explaining more what climate resilience means to people who don't know. Climate resilience is uh, a little bit squishy of what okay. it means because resilience is such a broad word. It means many things to right. many people. Uh, but climate resilience is generally understood as being able to uh, prepare for, respond to, withstand uh, mm -hmm. climate impacts. And okay. climate impacts are everything from more extreme weather, like mm -hmm. greater droughts, bigger storms, more flooding, mm -hmm. greater heat. Right. Uh, but then there are all the cascading events that flow from having those extreme weather events hit a particular community. 
Right. And what got you interested in pursuing climate resilience specifically as, uh, as part of your career? Well, I can really pinpoint the date. Oh, okay. I have Please been do. invited to join the Obama administration as senior counselor to Secretary Napolitano at the Department mm -hmm. of Homeland, Homeland Security. Mm -hmm. And shortly after I arrived, President Obama in October 2009 issued an executive order requiring all agencies to plan for both uh, climate mitigation as well as climate adaptation. Of course, climate mitigation means cutting emissions. Right. And so that would mean that the Department of Homeland Security would look at its fleets of cars and planes and all the other equipment that it operates to reduce its emissions. But also it was called for the first time for climate adaptation. And the mm -hmm. words adaptation and resilience are not synonymous, but they're often used frequently together. I, nobody else wanted that assignment. Oh, uh, okay. So it landed on uh, to me to figure out how we, the department, this big sprawling agency that had been born out of the events of 9-11 mm -hmm. would respond to the order. And as head of that effort, I was able to immerse myself in climate risk. And I became very concerned and uh, essentially have been working on the issue ever since. Was it hard for you to get other people in the department to see climate change and climate resilience uh, in the way that you uh, eventually saw it as a, an important issue, or is it something that was fairly easy to get people on board? Well, climate is polarizing. There's no Certainly. way about it. And that's why I think I ended up with this assignment because oh, nobody okay. else wanted it. <laughs> but uh, once people have a chance to educate themselves about climate risk, I generally find that they are appreciative of what it can mean. It's just that there's a barrier because many people haven't had any formal education on climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, if they're a, a more senior leader now, it wasn't offered typically in their uh, college or university education. Right. And even I find many young people graduating today who simply haven't had any courses on climate. So that's a barrier to understanding what's going on. And of course, because of the political polarization, there's also resistance. But overall, I found that once people were given the chance to learn about what scientists were telling them, and of course, now it's quite certain uh, that human activity is causing the globe to warm and also that these events are worsened by those that warming, it's, it's really becoming uh, a matter that many accept. There's just an explosion, for example, in the financial sector of trying really? to come to grips with what climate change means occurring right now. I'm assuming you mean like um, companies trying to factor in climate change with uh, insurance and, and uh, trying to mitigate risk uh, in terms of like their investments. Are you talking about that aspect? All of it. Uh, so you have uh, asset managers trying to understand what, what will it mean as we transition to a low carbon economy? 
what does that mean for some of the investments they hold? Will some of them be valued less as a result of a transition from fossil fuels? And then similarly, other investments uh, could be deeply impacted by climate extremes, the disruption to supply chains, the inability of workers to get to work. We've seen a lot with the pandemic, how vulnerable we are when catastrophic risk strikes. Definitely. And the you mentioned the education piece around it, that a lot of people haven't been exposed to climate change and in their in either their school systems or um, as senior policymakers, they haven't been exposed to it um, even with the years of experience they've had. How did um, specifically climate resilience um, come about as a term? Even I haven't really heard much about climate resilience. I've heard much about climate change, um, but how did climate resilience become part of this conversation? The history of the word resilience is just fascinating. Uh, there was a polymath, a Scotsman, as I recall, several centuries ago, who was to whom the word ha has first been traced. But if you follow its trajectory, um, it didn't have a lot of popularity for a long time. And then it, in just recent decades, it's just shot up into the stratosphere. Okay. So I had similar questions as you have about what does this word resilience mean? When I started working on resilience, I learned that it had been uh, a word used in uh, the natural sciences, uh, mm -hmm. in engineering, and then in the social sciences, and it's continued to grow. One of the attractions about resilience is, first of all, it doesn't necessarily mean climate when you use it in the context mm -hmm. of a resilient community. It just means that the, the community can bounce back from mm -hmm. bad events. Adaptation, on the other hand, is a word that's generally associated with climate change. So you'll see right. that politicians have gravitated to the word resilience because it has less of the overlay of climate with all the um, political oh. fallout that can okay. be used, uh, that can follow that terminology. And that's one of the reasons it's become highly popular. It's also no clear definition out there. It's a mushy word, which means people can use it and uh, they can attract a greater um, a number of followers by using that word than uh, a more precise word, which might hmm. force a consideration of climate itself. So is it more that people are changing the terminology using the word uh, resilience instead of adaptation because they want more of a political, more political support for um, climate change reforms? Uh, or is it that more and more people are getting on board with climate change? Uh, and so they're trying to use climate resilience as a way to depoliticize the conversation. It's all of the above. All it's the just above. a very useful word. Uh, for depending on where you sit. If you don't want to talk about climate change, you can talk about resilience and have a very engaging conversation. Uh, and if you want to get more people uh, involved, you may not want to start with climate change. You could start mm. with resilience. The challenge with using the word resilience as opposed to adaptation is that climate change brings new extremes mm -hmm that really we haven't experienced in the six to 8,000 years that human civilization has been flourishing. Right. 
So if we talk about resilience without flagging that there is a new, very substantial accelerating risk of worsening extremes that are beyond anything that we've ever planned for, people could think they're going to be resilient by simply building, for example, a seawall mm -hmm. that doesn't take into account future sea level rise. Right. So once you engage on what are you going to do to be resilient, it's very important that there's a discussion about these new unfamiliar risks that have never had to be part of our planning process before. And what are these risks that you're talking about that uh, we're just starting to uncover? If you think about any extreme event you've heard recently, you'll hear somebody usually quoted as saying, I've lived here 50 years and I've never seen anything yep. like this before. Absolutely. Well, that, if you step back with climate change, that's really not newsworthy. Everything, mm. almost all of these events will be worse than what we've experienced in the past because that's by definition what climate change brings. Worsening extremes in the future plus sea level rise. Mm -hmm. If we do not plan for that, if we just look as we have for all of human recorded history, we've only looked to what we've experienced in the past to choose how to be safe in the future. Mm -hmm. Turns out that planning assumption is lousy in the <laughs> face of climate change. We need to now not only consider the extremes of the past, but also what are the scientists telling us is coming mm -hmm. so that we include future sea level rise, future heat extremes, bigger storms, higher winds in choosing where and how we live and then all our business processes, all our infrastructure sectors, all of those need to take into account these bigger risks. And are you satisfied with how the United States and the international community as a whole, we've, uh, we've tried to tackle these, these new risks uh, that, you're, that you're talking about? Or do we still have a ways to go? Beyond our ways to go, we really haven't started. Really? Okay. I mean, there are very few countries to have made a... A significant step forward here. Uh, there are a few notable exceptions, but uh, the Global Adaptation Commission, which is chaired by uh, former UN General Secretary Ban Ki-moon, Bill Gates, and the head of the IMF, have, has basically concluded just last year that we really haven't done much at all. If you look at financing, um, about 95% of this financing has historically, for climate change, has historically gone to cutting emissions, not to adapting to future extremes. We don't really have the kind of building standards and codes that we need to build more strongly to withstand these future impacts. So wow. we're just on the beginning, at the beginning of this journey on climate resilience adaptation. And frankly, we're way behind where we need to be. So getting to hypotheticals here, if you were to say, become uh, empress of the world, if all the world could, all the world's governments could come under Alice Hill um, and you had all the power in the world, what steps are necessary for us to take in order to make um, the risks associated with climate change uh, not as impactful as they could be if we continue down this tr uh, current trajectory? There's a basic step and there are many ways you can accomplish this step. 
but basically in any decision making, there must be consideration of the future risks of climate change. So whether you're a communications specialist uh, in a civil engineer, a uh, transportation guru, mm. uh, a financial analyst, you should have an understanding of the future risks that could impact your decision making. And that means we need to educate the decision makers as to what those risks are and help them build frameworks for how they can consider them. And then we need a metric system to judge how well we're doing at incorporating those climate risks into our future choices. Is there, is there anything that you believe uh, we haven't talked about in this conversation that you really wanna drive home or is there anything? Well, I think the very first place all of this starts is with planning. And the first place given that we're divided the world into nations is national adaptation planning. Hmm. So many nations have embarked on national adaptation plans. The United States has not which has made it very vulnerable. It doesn't have a plan. The Government Accountability Office, which is the watchdog for the federal government, has repeatedly called out and said, this is a high risk to the nation, to our treasury, to our ability to pay, right. because we do not have a plan. And so we are behind and we need to uh, increase our efforts. The other thing I would say is that there's a divide between the adaptation and mitigation community. So sometimes those who are working very hard on the very important essential task of cutting emissions have not um, engaged in a discussion on adaptation. And there has been a real division between these communities, which if that continues, creates even greater risk because it means that as we make decisions about mitigation, we are not considering what that could mean for adaptation and vice versa. And you can have maladaptation or you can have decisions about how to mitigate, for example, um, just putting solar rooftops everywhere without really considering mm -hmm. what happens when there's greater wildfires and the sun simply because of the soot can't reach those uh, panels that yeah. are supposed to be collecting uh, the sunshine. Wow, never even considered that before. Wow. Most haven't, and it's not considered routinely in our calculations about how much solar power we'll need, uh, or that solar power could greatly drop, as we saw both in Australia and in California, when there are wildfires. And now wildfire season is spreading for throughout the year. Right. right. We need to recalculate our assumptions underlying how much power we can get. Because as we've seen in Texas, when we run short on power, there are dire consequences. Wow. This was a fascinating conversation. I learned so much from you, uh, Alice. Thank you for being on this uh, podcast. Um, is, there, is there anything that uh, you want people to know about your work, uh, someplace that we can go see your work? Uh, you can always go to the Council on Foreign Relations website. We keep that updated with um, everything I'm working on. I will have a book come out Amazing. this summer. Uh, it's called The Fight for Climate After COVID-19. It examines lessons we've learned from the pandemic 
and what we can take from that to do better as we prepare for climate change. There is one last thing I would leave, leave with your audience is that for anyone considering their future options with regard to whatever career they choose, climate will become a dominating area of discussion and focus. And it would be wise to learn more. And if you're still in school, we'll take the courses on climate change. So you are better prepared to understand what these risks will mean for whatever choices you make going forward. This was 37th and the World. Thank you to Alice Hill and her interviewer, Jesse Lin. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a comment and rating on whichever streaming platform you use. To read this interview and other insightful interviews and articles, please check out chagia.georgetown.edu. Thank you for listening and see you next time.